Hey guys, Jim Cox, Devon Financial Partners, Park Avenue Securities, and I'm here with an interview with Jeff Colgan. He's a professor and a scholar at Brown University, and I had recently um, read an article um, that he had published in Global Policy Magazine um, about the need to really look at carbon assets and how the economy values them. And I think that's a uh, critical thing for really people who are looking at their finances and looking at the economy to try to kind of wrap their heads around. And uh, so I appreciate, uh, Jeff, thanks for taking the time to chat today. Awesome. So, uh, tell us a little bit about your background. What, um, you know, what, what do you really have uh, background in in terms of uh, your teaching and uh, your education? Well, I'm uh, now a professor of political science and international relations at Brown, as you mentioned. Uh, but I've taken a, a kind of a long uh, journey to get there. Uh, I actually trained originally as a nuclear engineer. Um, in part because I was interested in climate change uh, uh, even in those days and thought that nuclear energy had a kind of important role to play in that. I still believe that, but uh, as an individual, I thought engineering was not the light for me. So after a year uh, working as a nuclear engineer with a Canadian nuclear design firm, I decided to uh, get out of that and switch did a couple other things, some consulting, worked for McKinsey for a little while, uh, and then uh, sort of found my calling as, uh, as a professor uh, and switched to political science. Awesome. So um, your uh, your article, you pos- you basically posited the, the need to examine carbon assets in a different way uh, within the economy. Can you talk a little bit about that article and kind of what the thinking around it? Uh, and the third uh, asset class is real estate. 
especially coastal real estate that will be affected by storms and flooding and other sorts of things. Uh, of the sort that we saw with, with say, Hurricane Harvey uh, and Houston, Texas, and all the flooding that they had. Uh, and the, the argument is like, look, uh, climate risks are present for all three of these, and it's quite possible that we're mispricing the risk of, of actually of all three of them, uh, possibly, but at least one of them almost has to be wrong. Uh, and I, I'm happy to explain more about why I think it, it has to be true that at least one of those is wrong. No, I think that's completely uh, accurate and true. And, I mean, one of the uh, things that I've found is, you know, when uh, the market is looking at risk, it's it's like driving a car looking backwards. You're looking back at, like, what's happened in the past in order to figure out where you're heading in the future, which is only going to end you, you know, end up with you hitting a tree. And, um, you know, it's... Uh, the fact is, climate change risk is not the same risk that we've been facing for, you know, the past few centuries. So you one of the things about climate change is it makes it so hard to study, you know, for, for my field academically or, or in, you know, for financial actuaries to think about it because we really don't have a great evidence base. Right? Yeah. The evidence is based on what we've experienced in the past and what we're experiencing in the going to experience in the future really might not look anything like that. So how do you, I mean, I see this as well every day. I mean, how do you then get the market or even individual companies to recognize that they have to evaluate risk in a different way other than, you know, hitting them over the head with a rolled up newspaper? The challenge, though, is I think we're seeing things accelerate in terms of temperature increases. Um, I know in January there was like a 50-degree temperature spike in the uh, Arctic, which has uh, really was a gut punch to uh, you know sea ice up there, which will have impact climate systems in the northern hemispheres. 
freezing in the middle of winter. Yeah. Just, in the know, dark. Yeah. Mind-boggling. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, so you could say, okay, well, Big Oil, you're doing your thing, but then that's got implications too. If we really believe that uh, we're going to continue, pol- you know, polluting based on these this kind of oil consumption over the next couple of decades, then that really does mean that we should expect a very bad climate future. And that's got implications for insurance companies and for, for homeowners, uh, for people who, who own real estate property, um, because that's going to mean more uh, damaging storms and uh, more forest fires, all kinds of effects that we're just starting to get a handle on scientifically. Yeah, I, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, that issue in particular is... Uh, I was talking to a uh, client in California yesterday, and she was sharing the fact that she recently had her homeowner's insurance canceled because of fire risk, because of where she lived, and that this has actually been uh, accelerating and and becoming worse for homeowners in California, where you see kind of the um, suburban housing pushing out into wilderness and really in in prime fire risk areas and so you know to have your you know one of your main assets uninsured you know that's not financially feasible you know from a good planning standpoint Yeah, and I mean, a lot of times, though, even with those emergency relief funds, they still don't make up the gap of, you know, what's lost in terms of net worth. I mean, whether it's in terms of, you know, like Sandy, uh, I know a lot of people who suffered because of uh, what happened with Hurricane Sandy still haven't been made whole from properties that they've lost along the shore, you know? I mean, even now, I think if you talk to people who are looking at 
buying real estate along the coast, um, I don't really think um, people see sea level rise as as a risk in their purchase. And yet, yeah. you know, I as an individual, I think it's not only is it the, probably the most important purchasing decision that you're going to make during your life and during your, you know, for your financial future, but, um, you know, you're not weighing all of the, uh, all of the relevant information that you need to, you're basing it off of feelings and off of, again, what happened in the past and kind of the memories that you have from a kid being at the shore with your parents and, you know, wanting to relive that. Yeah, and I think that um, I've read a number of articles which have uh, indicated that, um, you know, property appreciation along the uh, coastlines have actually been less than property appreciation further inland over the past couple of years. And, you know, I think a lot of that has to do with kind of recent experiences with, uh, with storms and so forth. Yes, yeah, there have been a couple of articles, and actually there have been um, indications, um, I think it was a, a study related to um, Fannie Mae, or had put out a uh, <clears throat> study in the past year about um, the need to look at, um, like you said, financing of property along the coast, and what that means for when there isn't going to be financing available along the coast, you know, yeah. for those properties that are, you know, at risk. So. Yeah. I mean, it just strikes me that, you know, if you look in lower Manhattan or certain parts of Boston or, you know, you pick your, you know, Maryland, California, Texas, you pick your coastal area, there are going to be parts of this country where, we need to be building seawalls instead of condos, uh, and and yet we're doing the opposite of that. Yeah, and I mean that brings up another risk is just infrastructure costs, right? It's it's going to be a matter of which areas are going to be able to afford to invest in the infrastructure to be able to try to hold hold things back. One of the, um, you know, I was looking at um, a lot of the other things that you've written over the past couple of years, and again, you've 
talked a lot about the uh, issues around oil companies and so forth and climate. I'm uh, curious about your take on uh, the impact of climate change and um, kind of the developing refugee crisis. Um, you know, Syria is kind of the first act, but, you know, I think we see that occurring more. I mean, what's your take? Well, I think, uh, you know, the links between climate change and migration are incredibly complicated. They are debated heavily uh, by people uh, with a lot more expertise on the subject than I do. But um, I, I think, you know, the preponderance of evidence, right, we don't have a smoking gun, but the preponderance of evidence suggests that actually, you know, climate change is making civil wars and uh, uh, worse in certain parts of the world, particularly Africa and, um, and the Middle East. And uh, that leads, you know, civil wars have always led people to migrate. Uh, and so it pushes people out uh, and creates more problems for the countries around them. Uh, and sometimes those countries, you know, are distant, right? So it could be Europe in particular uh, that's going to experience um, more migration. So I think that's that's absolutely right. Uh, and look, we're going to see all kinds of effects of climate change that we just haven't anticipated. And that's the thing that I really took away from some of my other research on this, that there are things that you know haven't occurred to us yet uh, about the kind of risks that we'll face. Uh, and I'm continually surprised at how much we're learning about the effects of, of uh, climate change even compared to you know, five years ago or uh, certainly 10 years ago. Um, we didn't know that climate change makes lightning strikes more frequent uh, 10 years ago, but now we do. Uh, and that lightning strikes in combination with the drier forests of California, well, guess what? You know, that's where you get lots more fire, forest fires. Hmm. Interesting. What um, you had mentioned before, uh, carbon tax, I mean, uh, I know that there have been some talk about a carbon tax as a way to try to motivate industry to move in a more uh, progressive direction, but, you know, clearly that's not going to be an option with um, kind of the current state of affairs in uh, Washington, D.C., what um, what are the prospects for a carbon tax to be effective given a different environment? Yeah, I mean, I think we're going to probably, to make real headway on climate change, we'll, we'll probably need to do a combination of things. I think a carbon tax should be absolutely kind of one arrow in our quiver, and uh, it should be, it should start low and scale up. And the reason it should start low is because that's the only way that it becomes politically, you know, feasible. And it gives people, especially investors, time to plan, uh, to realize that, okay, this is coming and we need to put the right uh, investments and the right infrastructure in place over a period of, you know, not just a few years, right? We should at least have, you know, 20-year time horizons on this. Um, but... Um, and, and so I think we should do all of those things, uh, but I, I don't think we should lose sight of the fact that the, the nature of climate change is that, you know, the emissions that we're putting out today 
aren't really going to have full effect on the environment for another 20 years. Mm. And so that, that puts us in a real bad position because we're uh, still kind of spewing out stuff at this point that we're only really going to you know, grapple with the cost of that uh, down the road. And uh, it, it's hard for you know, people in general and certainly large political societies to, to anticipate things, to see, oh, wow, this is coming down the track. We should do something about it now. Uh, that's, that's not something democracies in particular are good at. We tend to be reactive. Like only once it's happened do we then turn around and say, okay, let's stop it for the next time. So what would be, other than a carbon tax, like what would be some other proactive solutions to try to address affecting change for climate? Great question. So uh, a couple things. One is you know, making sure that we're putting the right kind of energy infrastructure into place mm. now. Yeah. If you look at China, they're heavily investing in solar and wind. They are the world's leader on those. And we are doubling down on fossil fuels. And that doesn't make for a good strategy. Uh, that's one of the ways in which America is just kind of losing on a, on a global competitive race. Um, another one, uh, I think, is to, to really put a, a pot of money uh, aside, to uh, a public uh, pot of money uh, to, that private actors could, you know, whether it's firms or investors or inventors uh, who are working on the kind of technological breakthroughs that are really necessary. If you look at the Department of Energy right now, uh, a huge, the vast majority of the public funds for research and development that the Department of Energy uh, gives out is for nuclear energy. And we're not thinking hard enough and not spending enough dollars on providing research money for you know, carbon capture or battery technology or you name it, the kinds of things that are the other alternatives for uh, decarbonizing our economy. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think that that's key in terms of, you know, economic competitiveness. Um, there was an article I read um, either today or yesterday, and they were talking about um, the use of battery or storage technology um, in California in 2017 because of the extent of storage, energy storage, they were able to save over $600 million that otherwise would have been spent on higher energy costs because of higher temperatures. Um, right. And so being able to have that, that prime time of day energy to be released and keep prices down, that's another 600 million that, you know, goes back to consumers or goes back to business to be able to stay competitive. Whereas if we don't, you know, that's literally $600 million you take a match to, you know? Right, right. And providing, you know, customers, whether they're businesses or private individuals, with the right incentives is so important. You know, we should be, we can and should uh, run our dishwashers and our, um, our dryers at night, but we have no incentive to do so because the grid isn't set up that way most places in America. 
Yeah. And that's something that we could work on. That's the kind of investment that's uh, important and necessary for us to make progress. That's that's uh, great advice. That's good. Um, what what are the uh, prospects for political change? Would you say in terms of in a world where we're seeing the the challenges that around you know the migration issue around kind of um, the um, economic challenges that you know there's kind of an inherent conservatism that has come into power and the challenge for really kind of a you know a more liberal approach a more human humanized economy um, is kind of challenged in an environment which is is under stress. I mean, don't you think? Yeah, so I'm, I'm heartened by the fact that you have, you know, a Republican uh, member of Congress um, just in the last couple of days introducing a bill for a carbon tax uh, and Republican from Florida doing that. Uh, now, mind you, he's got a whole bunch of things that I don't like. He wants to replace the, the gasoline tax with a, a carbon tax. And to my mind, that's, uh, that's a step in the wrong direction because you want to do both of these things. You want to stop. You want to make sure that gasoline, uh, you know, and cars generally have to pay for things like the highways that they use, which is what the gasoline tax is, is used for. And in fact, it's far... Uh, too low to even pay for the maintenance of our roads, uh, and sometimes driving on the highways you can really feel it. Um, uh, but we ought to be doing both, right? We ought to stop subsidizing fossil fuels and making sure that they pay the full sort of social cost of their consumption. But then on top of that, we should also be doing a carbon tax um, to encourage businesses, power plants. Um, to start moving away from carbon-intensive uh, industries. Uh, and, you know, once we get our house in order, we ought to be pushing the other countries to do that too so that we don't face uh, any kind of competitive disadvantage for doing it. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, some countries have already kind of embraced this. I saw that, uh, what was it, Costa Rica is like using, admittedly it's a small country, but 100% renewable at, at this point so um, yeah it's Amazing. not yeah it's not uh, beyond the realm of possibility that's right and you know look there are there are opportunities you know there are always business opportunities as they come up and i'm not sure that we want the chinese to be the ones capturing all of them right to be the first movers and to figure out you know what's the best way to manufacture giant wind turbines and the most efficient uh, solar cells, that's, that's not what, the kind of future for the American economy that I want. I want us to be the leaders on that. Awesome. Um, what would you, what advice would you offer to, uh, to people in the uh, oil industry at this point? Uh, has been speaking 
speaking out of both sides of its mouth about climate change for um, something like 20 years. And I think, you know, Steve Cole's book, uh, uh, Pulitzer Prize winning uh, uh, reporter, uh, who really exposed ExxonMobil for being fully aware of climate change and, in fact, using uh, climate change assumptions in their own internal models for uh, how to make investments and where to, where to drill oil wells and all of this stuff, uh, and then turning around and kind of funding uh, climate uh, skeptical research uh, and kind of causing a certain amount of confusion about the issue uh, in the public sphere, which is really all it needs to block any kind of good government. Uh, policy on the issue, um, you know, oil companies got to stop doing that and really come clean on uh, a future where um, we start to see fossil fuel consumption, uh, well, we start to see net greenhouse gases go way down, uh, and probably that also means fossil fuel consumption going down as well, unless they can find some sort of real technological advance uh, to change the link between fossil fuels and greenhouse gas emissions. Well, circling back to, again, your uh, your article that um, talking about uh, assets and uh, sinking assets um, you know, in a world where fo- oil or fossil fuels become less important, you know, those assets go down in value. So, you know, Companies have to reevaluate where they're going to be in 20 years rather than next quarter, right? That's right. Uh, and I think they're already starting to think very seriously about, you know, making sure that they can make the, the oil wells that they're drilling now profitable on a time horizon of more like 10 years instead of these really long, kind of decades long um, uh, investments. Understanding that there's uncertainty around climate change and around policy and reaction to the, the environment. Um, but I, I would like to give them a very clear picture that, that governments are going to act uh, and, and uh, do more on this issue, uh, even though politically uh, I, I tend to be a little bit of a pessimist about whether we're going to get there uh, on, on policy. Gotcha. Hey, I... Uh, uh... Time's about up. I uh, wanted to. Uh, I want to thank you for taking the time to chat. If somebody wants to um, talk to you or learn more about the work that you do and your research, how can they reach out to you? Well, uh, I'm Jeff D. Colgan at Twitter, uh, and uh, I'm, my email is uh, easily found on the Brown website. Uh, but I, I certainly would encourage anyone to read that article. Um, uh, at Global Policy, I think the title is something like uh, the, the markets are valuing climate risk all wrong yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, uh, I hope that um, others will find that a useful article. Yeah, no, I'll uh, try to reference that in the uh, when I post the, uh, the interview. So. Great. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot, uh, Jeff. And, um, you know, we'll have to uh, chat again in the future. Thank you.